we're not going to cover a lot of Galatians again, but yet we're covering Galatians. We're not going to move forward very many verses, but we're going to be talking about what we've been discussing because it is so vital. Um, I don't know if any of you have been listening to that podcast, uh, Cultish, um, but I thought it was very timely what I spoke on last week, but what then came out on there. Because as I listened to that, it's dealing with the Hebrew root movement. Now, they're not saying it is a cult, but they're talking about some of the, the cultish things that uh, are in that movement. And I've said here a number of times that I don't like to be called Hebrew root because of all of the negative things that go along with that. And I think that this podcast kind of elaborates on that. And so far, I haven't found anything that applies to us as we've listened to two weeks of that. Matter of fact, uh, one of the things they keep talking about is how we say that there's a renewed covenant, and I've been telling you, no, it is a new covenant. And we've talked about how, why would you want to go back to the old covenant? You don't. But this is going to kind of look at that very question, is how can we be Torah-observant followers of Yeshua, Jesus, when... Some of us are wearing clothing of two types of material. Or why aren't we going to Jerusalem three times a year? Or, you know, a number of different laws that are in the book of Leviticus or elsewhere. You might notice that my kids, at least some of them are here tonight. I didn't stone them to death. Right? Uh, Why didn't you stone them? Yet. Yet. (laughs) Okay. You kept the four alive. (laughs) Yeah, I kept four alive. Who knows how many I really had. (laughs) The point being, though, is these are things that need to be discussed when we're dealing with this old and new covenant. Um, Because sometimes we get excited to tell people about this newfound truth that we're seeing that Wow, God's word is just being unfolded everywhere, but in, instead what they hear, rather than excitement and, and we're growing in Christ, they think somehow we've handed over Jesus to grab onto the law instead. And that is the very thing that, you know, I'm sure you have already heard people share. Uh, I've had people tell me that, even though I keep reassuring them, no, that's not it, that's not it. They're not hearing that. In their heart and in their mind, they still feel like somehow we're running after the old covenant. And may that never be. And I hope that this is going to give you some ammunition to be able to help understand yourself as well as to share with others why that is not what I ever would hope that any of you would do. Because that old covenant is a covenant of condemnation. It is not the end thing. We do not want that. We want the new. And so, again, for those of you listening, if you have not uh, heard the other parts of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews is a very important book to go through to understand that new covenant as well, and so you can find that on Patreon here. But let's cover just a little bit of what we've already talked about here just to give you the context one more time here in Galatians 4.21. He says, tell me you who desire to be under the law, 
Do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through the promise. And so we often hear this verse, as I've said before, used against people like me to say, see, the law is gone. The law is done away with. And I never want anybody to think that I'm saying the law is gone. The old covenant is gone. But the law, which was part of the old covenant, has remained. But not with the bond servant, not with uh, condemnation, but with freedom. And that's what we're going to look at here. And so to examine this a bit, I'm going to take you to Romans tonight. Another very important book. Love to go through that too, maybe after Revelation. But um, uh, which, by the way, I am getting excited about the Revelation study now. I mean, every week I'm preparing. I'm like, oh, oh, oh. I mean, I'm like, I, I want to start tomorrow. I'm so excited about the we'll things be here. that. Yeah, <laughs> you, you will be blessed by this study. I am telling you, it's going to blow your mind. I, I guarantee you, you will hear things you've never heard before, and you're going to see Scripture in a new way for that book as well as others. It's, it's just wonderful. Anyway, um, Romans, though, is very important. Romans verse uh, 6 of chapter 7 says this, But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. Kind of sound familiar? Kind of sounds like what Galatians is talking about here, isn't it? But we need to examine what does it mean to be delivered from the law. Like I, you know, beat a dead horse all the time. Many say that the law is over, but that's not the context of what we're reading here in Romans. Um, <clears throat> the very words I've even heard, you know, not to obey the law. I mean, in this case, that just, it sounds terrible. I mean, think about that for a moment. For me to say you're not to obey the law, you've been delivered from the law, don't need to keep it, then that gives me a license to murder, to go cheat on my spouse, to do drugs, to do all kinds of things, right? To lie, to cheat. Because nobody would say, if I say, hey, you shouldn't lie, Oh, no, no, you're not under the law. See, it just doesn't even make sense, right? We, we pick and choose this when it seems to fit our desires and what we want. But you can't do that. You're either, that law still is either good or it's not. One or the other. So you have to remember that we're in chapter 7. There are six chapters before this. But yet... So many Christians today will focus on this verse or that verse in Galatians when we say, well, I, I, I am, you know, try to keep the commandments of God. Oh, yeah, well, Paul, you know, he says here in Romans, we're delivered from that. Don't do, you know, don't go there. Yeah, but Paul also says this in chapter 6, just before that. What then should we say? Should we continue in sin that grace may be abound? He says, certainly not. Or in chapter 2, verse 13, for not that we are not the hearers of the law, 
that are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law who are justified. Is Paul schizophrenic? I mean, make up your mind. Is it good or not? Or 331, do we then make void the law through faith? Do we, now you are not under law, do you get rid of it? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish it. We establish the law. So, it's important to look at the context of this. Consistency in God's word is important. And we're going to have to work on what has already been established in the scriptures, in that context of Romans, rather than just isolating Romans 7. And the same thing with Galatians or Hebrews or anything else. So let's look at some other parallel passages to Romans 7, 6 here. Second uh, Corinthians 3, 4, Paul, again, writing, says, We have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. In other words, we can't be good enough to be sufficient. Our sufficiency isn't ours, it's God's. He says, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So, very important. The new covenant is the work of the spirit. And what does it give? Life. So, let me ask you this. Is the letter here? talked about for the letter kills is the letter the law itself what is the spirit supposed to teach us is another question the spirit gives life okay it talks about here in Romans 7 6 just kind of comparing those two I've got them there side by side so that you can see it's pretty much saying the same thing ministers of a new covenant not of the letter of the spirit the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And then in Romans, we should serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. See the contrast? It's not that the law or the letter itself has been taken away, but it's almost like the motivation or the ability is now gone. In the old... The letter was there, but now, and in the new, the letter was there, is there. However, the difference being, in the new, we understand the spirit of it, and we have the spirit to teach us that. Who gives us the ability to obey. Who gives us joy and happiness and peace in obeying. That's the difference. So, 2 Corinthians 3, 4 kind of talks about how is this going to be expressed by the Spirit and the law and the letter. It says, we have such trust through Christ, as I read already, but it continues then in verse 7. Okay, so I did the small print is what we just looked at. 7 continues telling us this. If the ministry of death, that's the letter of the law in the old covenant, written and engraved on stones was glorious... Now, don't miss that. It was glorious. 
Today, we kind of look at the law as a bad thing. Back then, that was a ter- No, it was a great thing. So that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? See that comparison? In the Old Testament, Moses, when he went up and was receiving even the law of God himself, when he comes down after talking with God, his face is glowing. Was it because just, you know, a scientific thing about the light brightness of God absorbed and now it's, you know, radiating back? No, this has nothing to do with science. This has everything to do with the Spirit. This has everything to do with the glory of the law. And that's what it was saying here, that... It was engraved on stone and it was glorious. So that the children of Israel, when they looked at what? The law. It was radiating from him. It was glorious. Now, the Ten Commandments here in verse 7 are called the ministry of death. How can it be a ministry of death and yet glorious at the same time? Well... Again, it's dependent on how you understand it. There are all kinds of things today that we have that can be good or bad, yet it's the exact same thing. Some things are actually poisonous to you. If you understand how to use it, though, it can actually save your life. If you don't understand how to use it, it'll kill you. It's kind of the same type of thing here. But yet, this is used, and I'm sure you've all heard it, to, to say that we don't need to obey the law anymore, that that's gone. Well, re- remember the context of Romans. So, <clears throat> why does the church consent continue to teach the Ten Commandments in places? Why is the church upset when the Ten Commandments are removed off of the courthouse lawns? There's an inconsistency there, isn't it? You either got to love it or, or, or hate it. It's either in effect or not in effect. So if the law is gone and we shouldn't be doing this anymore, we ought to be the first ones in line trying to get rid of the Ten Commandments off of the courthouse lawns. Okay? But I'm not you know, a proponent of that by any means, as you know, because I know that the law is still good when one uses it properly, as Timothy says. So, I'm going to propose to you and show you tonight that the reason that people want to throw out the law is simply because they don't understand the spirit of the law. They don't understand how to use it, what it's for, how it is supposed to look under the new covenant. And so, quoting Exodus here, is really what he's doing. We're going to see in this next slide that this ministry of death was indeed a glorious thing. Exodus 34, 35 is where he's talking about. Whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, if the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. So what was the purpose of the veil for Moses to cover it? To, to shield the glory of the law. That's what Corinthians said. 
That's what we're seeing here. So they couldn't gaze at this light. It, it, it's not just light. It's the glory of the law. And so God was showing here, I believe, that in the Old Covenant, there was going to be more. There was something that you could not, you couldn't handle it yet. Something was still being veiled. One day it would be unveiled. That's the New Covenant. Because there was going to be more coming. And I think that this very story is a very prophetic story because of that. Jeremiah is going to come hundreds of years later. And he's going to be talking about the New Covenant. And he's going to say things like, Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. We talked about that last week. Again, prophetically speaking, comparing the old and the new. I won't go in it again since we talked about it last week. But they never, even in Jeremiah's day, did they fully understand what that meant. Even though he was telling them, they couldn't grasp it. I think the same is true in the church today. That we're trying to explain the law to people and there's a veil that remains and they cannot see the glory. 2 Corinthians 3.9, again, if the ministry of condemnation had glory, continuing on, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. So if Moses had received the law and it was bright, imagine what it's like under the new covenant when that veil is removed. <laughs> because this is what we see in verse 10. For even what was made glorious, the law, had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what was or is passing away was glorious... Just like that bright light was fading away on Moses, he had to do this until the light had faded. Again, very prophetic. He says, if it was passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, We'll continue on in a moment, but first, notice that there's a transition period. We talked about that in Hebrews. He's telling us, hey, there's a new priest, there's a new temple, and yet the temple was still up because there was that little transition period until 70 AD when that temple would be gone and wiped out so that God could really proclaim, you guys are the temple. Now, don't get me wrong, you were the temple before the physical temple was torn down. You became the temple when Jesus died on that cross and resurrected. But there was a transition period where things were being understood here. Now, <clears throat> that's why we see the present tense here, that the old covenant vanishing in the present tense. What is passing away? He was talking about that old covenant passing away. He's writing at this time period, so kind of keep that in mind. It goes on and it says, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, right up to that present time, the same veil remains unlifted if the, in the reading of the Old Testament. 
because the veil is taken away in Christ. Now I hear people using this all the time to say this. As long as you guys are holding up the Old Testament, the laws, you are keeping a veil on Christ. You're wrong. Because that's gone. I see what this is telling us is this. Until this day, the same veil remains in the reading of the Old Testament without Christ. Think about the Jews today, the Orthodox Jews. Those guys follow the commandments and the law better than any of us could ever dream of doing. And yet, in many cases, they're outright satanic. They are hell-bound without Christ. Because without Christ, that veil of the law remains. When Christ comes, is it the light that goes away? The law that goes away? No, the veil is removed. You see, the veil was not the law. That's what was hiding the glory of the law. But when you come to know Christ... The veil that covers the glory of the law is removed so that you see how it excels in glory. That you ought to be able to look at the law of God now and because you have Christ in your heart, go, oh my, wow, I want that. That's what this is saying. You see, the veil is what's taken away, not the law. Why? So that you can gaze. Remember, Corinthians says it was put there so that they could not gaze upon it. Now we are to gaze upon it. Why? Because what is the law? The word of God. What is the word of God? Jesus. We are therefore gazing at Jesus. And the more you know the law of God, the word of God in any way, shape, and form, the more you get to know who Jesus is on a deep, intimate, amazing level. And as long as you hold back and you don't study the law of God, the word of God, I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but you are not going to be able to gaze at his glory. You are not going to know him in that deep, intimate way. And that's why if you're a Christian living in willful disobedience, good luck with your Prozac and everything else. Now, I say that tongue-in-cheek in a way, but not in a way. I'm not saying people can't be on antidepressant drugs, but I'll tell you this, there should be no reason that there should be just as many people in the church on antidepressant drugs as there is in the world. And I think the reason that there is no difference there is because the church has not gazed upon the glory. And you cannot expect to have the joy of your Christianity, the joy of Jesus, if you continue to walk in disobedience. What is disobedience? Sin. What is sin? Lawlessness. That's exactly what John tells us. Sin is lawlessness. And yet, the church is parading out, we're free from the law, we're free from the law, we're lawless. No wonder. That's why I love, in, I always forget if it's John 15 or John 17, but when, when Jesus is praying for his disciples, he tells them 
I will remain in you and you will remain in me. But he talks about obeying the commandments of God. And then he says this. He says that your joy may be complete. If you keep his commandments, it isn't about salvation. This is his blessing to you. This is gazing upon his glory. And your joy is going to be complete in him. So that's what this is saying. And it goes on here in verse 15. But even to this day when Moses is read, that law, a veil lies on their heart. Why? Because they don't know Jesus. It's, again, the law is supposed to be on their heart, but the veil lies there instead. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. It is my hope and prayer that tonight and through the next couple of weeks, that you're going to be able to see the glory of some of these Old Testament laws in the spirit of them so that you don't see just the letter but you see the spirit and when you do that you've got an answer for all of those people how come you're wearing clothing that's made of two different kinds of material you're going to have an answer for them because we're going to look at the law through an unveiled lens of Jesus Christ that's the difference just remember that you cannot understand the law without Jesus without Yeshua he is the key to understanding that law um, remember why Jesus preached in parables as well? He, he told his disciples, because his disciples asked him, why do you speak this way? And he said to veil the truth from those who weren't ready for it, basically. Right? The truth is there. In, in, when you know Jesus, you understand what he was talking about. Without Jesus, it's just a story. No more than a story. <clears throat> Same thing with the law of God. Without Christ, it's just a letter. With Christ, there's a spirit of it. And it's beautiful. Verse 17 goes on and says, Now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now I'm going to back up just for a moment here to show you that again. Where it talked about, if I can get there. Or was that? But basically talking about the spirit of the law. Um, it talks about it in Galatians. It talked about it in Corinthians earlier. A few more verses. But bottom line is, keep that in mind. That the letter of the law, and then there's the spirit, he says, that we need to understand. Well, how do you understand the law then? Well, by spirit. Well, what's the spirit? The Lord is spirit. Again, in Jesus, that's removed. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, okay, unveiled, why? Because of Yeshua, because of the gospel, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. We are being transferred or, or transformed into Jesus. Did Jesus live a disobedient, lawless life? No, he kept it fully, just as the Spirit of the Lord, it says. Verse 11 of uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man? 
which is in him. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. In other words, everyone is thinking a thought now. Right? Probably is he almost done, but point being, only you know what that thought is. What knows in the spirit of man except the spirit of the man? Likewise with the spirit of God. Romans said this, that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. But notice he called the law spiritual. That's going to be the difference. For us, the law is spiritual. For those telling you to stop keeping the law, the law is not spiritual. It's still of the letter. That's the difference between Hagar and Sarah in Galatians that we've been talking about here. The law is spiritual. So if the law is spiritual, that means the flesh cannot understand it. Just like I can't understand Mark's thoughts, but Mark's spirit can understand Mark's thoughts, Okay, we need the Holy Spirit to lead us to understand the glory of the law. So I'm going to show you some examples here. Uh, stoning, as I brought up here tonight. Okay, this law is pictured as a barbaric Old Testament, Old Covenant. Absolutely no way in the world would we ever do that. So, you know... Why aren't you stoning your kids? You, you, you love the law. Well, when we ask this question, if somebody says, so do you stone your kids? Just tell them yes. But let me explain to you. Okay? I want to show you that even Paul commanded Gentile believers to stone people in a sense. All right? Let me explain here. 1 Corinthians 5.1 says, It's actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. They don't even talk about it. That a man has his father's wife and you're puffed up and have not rather mourned. You're not repentant. You're not rebuking him. He says that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. When somebody's living in lawlessness, what are you supposed to do? Paul's saying, get them out of here. Get them away from you. Verse 3 continues, For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In other words, I don't care if I'm there or not already in spirit. I've condemned this man. I've judged him. Verse 4, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you were gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. For the what of the flesh? Destruction. That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus See, he's rebuking these guys very harshly here. This isn't soft. He is bringing a God of judgment to mind. Something that modern day Christianity doesn't, I mean, we don't even want to talk about a God of judgment. No, he's, he's loving. Let's just hold hands and sing kumbaya. If somebody is a, a liar in our church, if somebody's being sexually immoral, we just turn the other direction and we ignore it. 
There's no church discipline anymore. And this is what church discipline is all about. A God of judgment. Not a God of grace and mercy. Not yet. You'll see that later this guy is going to repent and whatnot. And he said, now bring him back. Now there's a God of, of mercy and grace. But in the meantime, you got to go. Hand this man over to Satan for judgment to destroy the flesh. We're going to jump to verse 11. It goes on and it says, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. Not talking about blood brother, but a brother in Christ who is sexually immoral, covetous, an idolater, a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner. Not even to eat with such a person. This is one of the verses, and I, you probably heard this story before, if not in my homosexuality DVD. Uh, I have a brother who's a practicing homosexual, and this was one of the verses that I just could not get over. If anyone's calling themselves a, a brother in Christ because he went to church and he thought he was a Christian, but is practicing these things, he says, not only are you supposed to kick him out of the church, you don't even have him over for Thanksgiving dinner. Don't even eat with that man. Now, by the way, if he calls himself a brother in Christ, if he was a non-believer, an atheist, you can invite him over for Thanksgiving dinner. There's a difference. And this chapter goes on to talk more about that very thing. But the point is, is if there's somebody, that person who was sleeping with somebody he shouldn't have there in Corinthians, not only was he to be kicked out of the church, they were to be shunned. Absolutely shunned. Do we practice that today in church? No, we've got to keep the communication lines open. Jesus yeah. Let, let's, let's try basically doing what Jesus did. Well, people say, well, even Jesus, you know, he ate with the sinners and whatnot. Yeah, he did. They weren't. They weren't going to church. That woman he cast out all the demons out of, all of that. No, they were repenting at that moment. They weren't living willingly in the sin. They were coming to him because they were sorry. They were repentant. There is a difference. And so this isn't all black and white. Anybody you know who's doing something wrong, you know, don't eat with them. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying are these people who are calling themselves Christians. And it isn't just homosexuality. It's sleeping with their boyfriend or their girlfriend. It's cussing up a storm and taking the name of the Lord in vain. And, and, and you've gone and talked to them and they don't care. And they're not changing their ways. It's, it's all kinds of things. Now all of us have things that we need to work on. The problem isn't that we all have things to work on. The problem is, is whether or not we do it with a repentant attitude or a discouraged attitude. I hate what I do. I hate losing my temper. I hate doing that. Or, eh, no big deal. I'm free in Christ. That's the difference. Verse 12 says, For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Meaning, an atheist. Do you not judge those who are inside, a brother in Christ? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. In other words, get rid of the person in the church, not the person outside of the church. But, notice what it says. Paul 
is really quoting Deuteronomy in some senses here, chapter 22. When Paul is talking about practicing church discipline, he says, put away from you this evil. Hand them over to Satan, destroy the flesh, kill it in the spirit. Deuteronomy 22.22 says, If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall what? Put away the evil from Israel. I guarantee you when Paul was saying this here in 1 Corinthians, he had Deuteronomy in mind. Guaranteed. Because notice that this is a stoning law in Deuteronomy 22. So he's quoting a stoning law in the New Testament in, in reference to church discipline. Um, Pastor Scott at E-Free here a month or so ago had a really good sermon talking about uh, this verse that deals with where two or three are gathered, there I am among you. And he said, you know, how often have we heard people saying, you know, where two or three are gathered, you know, let's have a good Bible study, because where two or three are gathered, you know, he's there. So that has nothing to do with what it means. You go read it, and in Matthew, that verse is all in reference to church discipline. On the testimony of two or three witnesses is when church discipline was to be practiced. And when he says that in Matthew, go look at it. I'm not going to give you that sermon here now, but go look at it. It's all in reference to church discipline. When you are gathered to excommunicate somebody from the church, he says, I'm there with you, giving you my approval. I am there with you. I am standing with you. It's okay. I'm going to be faithful to my promises, but you hand this man over to Satan. I'll work on him. That's what this is all about, church discipline. So, why wasn't he literally stoned by the Corinthians here? And just being excommunicated? Because they were still fulfilling the instruction of Torah. The spirit of Torah. By putting away the evil from Israel. There's another aspect to this too. Rome was still in power. They didn't have the right to stone somebody here either. Let me show you here, John 18, 31. Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. Speaking of Jesus, that they wanted the Jews to judge him. Therefore the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. See, they'd be breaking the law, which would be breaking the law, to put somebody to death. John 19, verse 6 says, Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. So, again, it just shows the Jews had no power to follow Torah commands of death as long as Rome was ruling and in power there. And so there was a Torah law in effect, but it was against Roman law to follow it. So what did they do instead? They did the spirit of the law. Even right there, 
they were following the spirit of the law, in a sense. So in Samuel, remember Saul excommunicated the witches. He was excommunicating the witches. By law, even in the Old Testament, those witches should have been stoned to death. But instead, what did he do? He got rid of the evil from among them and chased them out of town and got them away from Israel. We, we see, I, I think, that kind of a foreshadowing there in a sense, that the spirit of the, the law was being carried out. And in that case, even when they had the governmental authority, because Saul was king, he could have done anything he wanted there. Um, so things are not always carried out in the way that we have them you know, in our head or the way we think that they should be. They are many times, even in the Old Testament, following the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. And I think that they understood that. Because really, we don't really see many stonings take place at all, even recorded in Jewish history. But it was the Pharisees that took it a little bit more literal. Um, and, and that's in the New Testament that we see the Pharisees. They did not, the Pharisees are probably more of a post-Babylon thing that came about. You, you don't see Pharisees being talked about in the Old Testament. They're not there. That's a post-Babylonian construct. Because they were no longer under their own law that they could enforce, like we're under a governmental law, so to speak, under, or like you gave the example of the Roman law, like they get exodus into this other area and they can't perform that stuff anymore? Yeah, when they were captive, the whole priesthood and all of that kind of fell apart. And that's why when they come back, they have to even cast lots to figure out who's a priest and who's not, who's the line of Levi. And so they had set up a system of order basically, from priests and, and scribes and these godly men. And it's a little bit unclear exactly how it got to be as formed that we see in the New Testament, but we see that it really became a lot of man-made rules, and oral Torah became more pronounced. And oral Torah, I don't even think is a good thing or a right thing. Oral Torah is what they said God spoke to Moses but was not written down. Written Torah is God's word. And those are the things that we typically see Jesus going out and rebuking yep. the Pharisees for doing so. Exactly. Jesus will speak against the oral Torah. And I think that we have a tendency to read the New Testament kind of thinking that these Pharisees were a representation of old written Torah. And they're not. They're a representation of what's wrong to begin with. So... Uh, that distinction is important to make because of that. But there were several Pharisees, Yeah, the, the two primary ones were the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And they had different theological beliefs, like the Sadducees not believing in the physical resurrection of the dead and things like that. Um, but even within the Pharisees themselves, there were different sects and different beliefs. Uh, when we get to marriage, we're going to talk about that one a little bit. Uh, there was two schools of thought, Hillel and Shimei, and one of them said you could divorce your wife uh, if she burned your toast, basically. And the other one said, no, she has to be marital, maritally unfaithful. And then later on down the road, you're going to see, I think it was Rabbi Akiva, that's going to say, if you find somebody prettier than her, you can divorce this woman. I mean, forget if she burns your toast. But 
again, so that's all within the Pharisees that that teaching was there. Yes, Simon the Zealot. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, again, these are the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are taking this to the very literal approach. Whereas we don't see the disciples or the apostles, or even in the Old Testament, it really happening. We only see it with the Pharisees taking it to the very letter of the law. And that's why they tried to stone uh, not only Stephen, but tried to stone Jesus, too, and throw him off of a cliff. So, when they were all stoning people, Saul. When he was a Pharisee. Yep, so, Saul was when he was a Pharisee. But they said that they didn't have the right to do that. Yeah. I think that this was kind of one of those Shh, just do it and be quiet kind of things. Jesus was arrested. Um, it was very public, very, everybody knew. So this is just kind of, we'll just kind of poaching, basically. <laughs> so, so whether it be excommunication from the church or stoning, these are the three things that were accomplished. The goal of the spirit of that law was to deliver justice to the evildoer, to get the leaven out of the camp, the evil away from you, and it also struck fear in the hearts of those so that they would not do it themselves. Imagine if church discipline was done today, how much more people would maybe not do the things that they do. Going back to Deuteronomy 13, look at this. It says, If your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom, or your friend who is at your own soul, as your own soul, secretly entices you, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, neither you nor their fathers. Okay, what I want, we're going to continue on here in these verses in verse 9, but what I want you to see is even those closest to you, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's a family member. Okay, you do the same thing. You treat them the same. But it goes on and it says, You shall surely kill him. Your hands shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. And you shall stone him with stones until he dies, because he sought to entice you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. So all Israel shall hear in fear. Hear in fear. And not, do, and not again do such wickedness in this among you. So even in the Old Testament, we see many people were killed by the sword instead of stoning when they disobeyed. In the Old Testament, we even see the spirit of the law being understood. Yes, they did kill them, but by the sword. Why did, oh, but it says stone. They understood the spirit and the reason you do this is so that others will hear in fear, so that it's going to bring justice and it's going to get the evil away from you. Um, David, he was not wearing phylacteries, those boxes on their heads. He was not wrapping leather straps around his arm to bind his arm like the Pharisees did in Jesus' day. Why? Because David understood the spirit of the law. David knew that the law was to be on his heart and in his mind, not a box on his head and a zebra on his arm. 
He knew better because he knew the spirit of it. So much of this letter of the law picture is seen from the Pharisees of the New Testament, an absolutely ungodly sect that even Jesus himself called whitewashed tombs and a brood of vipers. Okay? So a lot of these things are man-made letter legalistic rules. Deuteronomy 17, 12. Now the man who acts presumptuously and will not heed the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall put away the evil from Israel and all the people shall hear and fear and no longer act presumptuously. Same kind of things to implement that awesome fear. Uh, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This would cause, I'll tell you again, church discipline would cause people to hear and fear, just like that example. Deuteronomy 19.18, another example. The judges shall make careful inquiry, and indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you, and those who remain shall hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Doesn't even talk about stoning here, but they knew Deuteronomy. They knew the whole point is stone, get rid of them, excommunicate, remove, so that people will hear and fear. And I think this is why Paul hands that man there in Corinth over to Satan. Because in so doing, it keeps the enemy, Satan, from taking over. It keeps the leaven out of the lump of dough. 1 Corinthians 13, 11 says, bad company corrupts good character. So get rid of the bad company to keep the good characters from being, you know, corrupted. You know, I used to, a school teacher for 10 years, and I saw it a number of times where I would have a, a classroom of great kids and a new kid would come in that was kind of a little snarky and, and a troublemaker. And all of a sudden, four or five kids of my wonderful kids who were never in trouble before, all of a sudden started doing really dumb things. Why? Bad company corrupts good character. So true. Which, by the way, that's why we too need to be careful who we hang out with and which is why you don't even eat with such a person who is in the church that is doing things that are lawless. What was that phrase that we, we elevate or honor good preaching above good doctrine? I don't remember exactly how it was worded, but that's the essence of it. If there's some preacher that is just, man, you really admire him, he's a great teacher, you go and you don't fall asleep every Sunday. People will follow him even though he leads a sinful life. Maybe from the pulpit, He's such a good guy, but he, he might swear or whatever. And so then the congregation says, well, if he can do it, I can do it. It must not be a bad thing. And so they start swearing or whatever the case might be. That's just an example. And that's why it's important for us to be what Paul would say, imitate me. We should live lives that are worthy of imitating because we live lives like Christ. If I'm lawless, please don't imitate me which is maybe why we need to be careful what we watch on TV. And let me tell you, I'm guilty of that 
of watching things that I probably shouldn't watch on TV. I try to be good, but there are still things that, you know, it's like, oh, okay, well, it's done now. I'll just keep watching, whatever, you know. The qualifications for elders. Yeah, that's exactly right. Qualifications of elders, uh, leadership again. So, anyway, the point being of this so far, and we're just kind of dipped our toe into the water tonight. We're going to look at some of the other things like marriage and and uh, the two kinds of clothing and not, you know that type of thing. Not binding an ox and a uh, what was it? An ox and a donkey together. Thank you. I could not think of the word. I was picturing another smaller animal, but <laughs> I was goat was the only yeah, thing coming to my mind. <laughs> um, we're going to see the spirit of that now that you have this foundation laid, and we'll be able to cover those rather quickly. But can you see here that, in a sense, do we stone today? Yes, we should. Not literally picking up the letter of the law and throwing a stone at somebody to kill them, but to destroy their flesh by handing them over to Satan and getting them out from among the congregation. It's in the Old Testament there as well. Like if, if they um, would, uh, I want to say, even talk back to you, your parents. Yeah. 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 We don't need Debbie to find that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's in the Vedic Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was disobedience to the parents, basically. And it was like the last step after bringing it to the elders. Yeah. And, and again, this is a perfect example of how in the Old Testament even they understood the spirit of the law because to our knowledge, historically, from what I've heard others say anyway, there is absolutely no record of any Jew stoning his child and it says for disobedience. They understood what it was about. It was the Pharisees that turned it to the letter and now we have kind of, that's all we see is the letter. So could this possibly be where some things you've got like excommunication of family or you've got, you know, people who are shunned or even exiled in some areas or cases? And it's all that exactly that. As a matter of fact, uh, we had a professor at Seward and she was a, an Orthodox Jew. She left Judaism and they, her parents literally had a funeral for her. They, if you are a Jew and you leave Judaism if you're walking down this side of the road and your parents are coming this way or your best friends, they will go to the other side of the street and turn their back until you pass by. You are dead to them. I'm going to close with this warning here. And the warning is, is we need to be careful not to think, oh, well, the spirit of the law, and so then we get to decide what the spirit of that law is. Okay, because then you will be able to justify a lot. What we see scripturally, we see an example where Paul is taking the spirit of the law and showing it to us very clearly by even quoting a stoning verse in Deuteronomy, applying it to this man who was sexually immoral. Scripture has shown me the spirit of that law. Okay? Now I think these, you're going to see the spirit of these laws, but I can just, I, I already can see, and I'm not even a fortune teller or else I'd be stoned, but I can see saying, well, then the spirit of the law, we, 
the spirit of this is that, the spirit of this is this, and, and we can live however you want to live. That is not what I'm saying here tonight. But I am saying there is a difference between the letter and the spirit. And in Christ, the letter of the law is taken away. And this is going to become more clear as we dive into a couple of these other you know, strange laws that we don't do today. But in Christ, and that is why without Jesus, these Orthodox Jews and whatnot that we have walking around today, it's still veiled. They're keeping the law, but it, the glory of it, the benefit, the goodness is all veiled because they don't know Jesus. That's why Jesus is the center of the law itself. The goal of 1 Corinthians 5.5 5 is, hand this man over to Satan so that his soul may be saved on the last day. Which is what we see happening in this example in Corinthians. They kicked him out. He repents so that they can bring him back. His soul was saved. That's the, the picture. When we read in Hebrews, it talks about, and none of them entered my rest because they were disobedient. They don't, this isn't a second chance like after you die kind of thing. No. Which may be why they understood the spirit of the law. Get this out. It, it, it's, it's a testing <coughs> or a trial. Uh, it's like uh, Deuteronomy says in chapter 13. Um, where it says that um, the Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you will love him with all your heart and with all your soul. In reference to, by the way, it starts out earlier saying that if a prophet or dreamer appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and if that miraculous sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. So in that case, yes, this is somebody that should be stoned. It doesn't say anything about stoning him there, but it's saying that I've allowed that to come into you to test you to see whether you will obey my commands and get it away from you. Don't dabble. Don't be near it. So, yeah. All right, we'll close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are just grateful that we can see the glory of the law, that what was passing away uh, no longer is fading away. It just gets brighter and brighter all the time because that veil has been taken away through you, Yeshua. So may you continue to enlighten us as we study your word and as we go about um, our daily lives, may we not just leave these things here, but that we would meditate upon them, that we would search these things out, that we would just uh, seek you. Because the more we know you, the more we love you. And that's our goal, Lord. So thank you for um, being the one that we can count on, the one who is our deliverer and the one who is our strength. In the name of Yeshua we pray. Amen.